0: On Friday night, February 23rd, Life of the Law will present Live Law in San Francisco, a night of live stories about law and technology in our lives, with stories by Marcus Thompson, lead columnist with The Athletic and author of the best-selling biography, Golden. The miraculous rise of Steph Curry, Suron Norris, multimedia artist whose massive murals challenge the impact of tech in the city, Fantastic Negrito, Oakland-raised explosive blues artist, Reddy Shaw, digital writer whose work has appeared in HuffPost and Medium, Troy Williams, founder of the San Quentin Prison Report, and Irene Tu, stand-up comic and Chicagoan living in the Bay Area. That's this Friday night. Live Law IPO. You can find tickets on our website, lifeofthelaw.org. Mr. Chief Justice,
1: the of the court. It's not a clear dichotomy between victims and perpetrators, right? Like When you have conflicts where children are conscripted and are used as combatants from age 12, 13, as we had younger than that, even in northern Uganda... It's very hard to not take into consideration the fact that they were also victims at the same time.
0: This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Today we're in studio with our team, Asagi professor at the UC Berkeley School of Public Health, and Tony Gannon, our senior producer of the series. And two guests, Annie Bunting, co-producer of the series and professor at York University in Toronto, and Kim Seelinger, director of the Sexual Violence Program at the UC. Berkeley Human Rights Center. She oversees the center's research, teaching and writing on sexual violence during armed conflict and forced migration. I'd like to start this morning by asking Tony Gannon, who, you know, like me, was introduced to the conflict in Uganda by Annie Bunting, to tell us a little bit about what did we approach in this series.
2: To me, the power of this series revolves around the question of what justice looks like to a segment of a population that has experienced trauma on a level that many Americans will just never experience. Um, The question of the relevance, I think, in some ways, and the efficacy of the International Criminal Court. That was always, for me, what was compelling about doing this series.
0: Hmm. And Annie, um, you introduced this series to us uh, a year and a half ago at, um, you know, the Life of the Law is funded by the Law and Society Association. And when we go to the Law and Society Association annual conferences, we have pitch sessions, which is a really interesting experience where scholars come and tell Life of the Law some of the work they're doing as possible stories. You came to that pitch session um, and said, you should do a story about what's happening in Uganda and what has happened. And can you can you go back to that day? Why did you Why did you approach us that day at the LSA conference?
3: It's interesting because we've been through so much together uh, on this journey as we've co-produced the series. It's interesting to look back now, probably for me, two years, even before I pitched um, the idea or what I thought might have been an idea for a series to you and Tony at the Law and Society Association pitch session. But when I think back to that time, I was really interested in both bringing some of the experiences of victim survivors to bringing those experiences to a broader audience, obviously to try and have some profile for the amazing work that our researcher collaborators are doing on the ground in a number of countries. And then also, I think when I look back at it, the the controversies around the International Criminal Court were the hook to try and interest a broader audience in thinking about what justice looks like, as Tony said, for survivors of conflict violence.
0: And, you know, you know when you came to me that day uh, and gave me your business card from York University, <laughs> and I came back to San Francisco and put it on my desk, and it took months before we actually began building this series— You know, at the time, I remember thinking, oh, right, you know, there are children being abducted in other countries, and it's really awful. And wow, I wish I knew more about it, but I don't. Um, And it's probably too big a story for us to tell. Um, And now that it's a year and a half later, and as you said, we have been through so much together. I mean, really, it's been an extraordinary journey, um, starting with an initial conversation and then when we met up in Mexico City with Tony and we began building out a structure for this series at a half hour meeting that turned into a 3 hour meeting mm-hmm. and then you know slowly building it and 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 kind of beginning to see the the depth of Uh, the misery and the complications and the complexity of this situation in Uganda, and then starting to actually, over time, see that this is something that isn't just happening in Uganda, but happens, I mean, I opened the paper, and it's happening in other countries right now. It's not that this happened 30 years ago, and now we're talking about something that once happened. Situations like this are happening in the, in the world today where children and people are being abducted and held captive and abused. And um, I think one of the things that we're doing today at this discussion, um, which we like to do at the end of a, of, of a story that we've all really had a lot to kind of digest and think about, is talking about what did we learn from this and where do we go from here? So what we did with this series was we decided to look at the lives of two people, two children who were abducted um, by the LRA um, and then follow their stories over the 30 years. So if you haven't listened to the series, I do hope you'll go back and listen to it. Um, but one of the challenges was finding someone to do the reporting. So we have a researcher that works with Annie in Kampala named Teddy A team. We have Annie, who's a scholar who's done this work. But we really needed someone in Uganda to tell the story. And so we found this incredible reporter named Gladys Aroma, who lived in Gulu, who ended up going into the villages and finding these two children, who are now adults, who could tell us their whole story. Because, you know, at Life of Law, we we want to tell a story, but we also want to capture the human story behind the law. So it was, you know we have completed the three-part series. Um, The first part was um, abducted, the second part escape, and the third justice. Um, So, Annie, why don't you take it from there?
3: So one of the things that I found fascinating in the process of... um producing the podcast and working with Gladys Aroma and Teddy a team in Uganda is that our research project looks at the mobilization of the institution of marriage in conflict situations when men and women are abducted but commanders take um, women and girls as forced captive wives and so I was always thinking as I pitched this story to Nancy and Tony about this this complexity around using the status of of marriage, which has been, as you said, Nancy, used for a very, very long time as a way of um, conscripting labor, domestic labor, and sexual servitude. But then what I learned through the process and working with both of you is that, and with Gladys and Teddy, is that we needed to tell the story through uh, Beatrice and Samuel and through intimately um, coming to know them. And so it became less, not less about law, because I think law is there all over the place. in the series. But it became, we we needed to start in a place that was different than, oh, is uh, forced marriage appropriately charged as a crime against humanity, or should it be called something else or something else? So that I found to be a really enriching process and one that I learned a great deal from.
1: Yeah, I think it's very interesting to point out some of the parallels that we see in what happened during the
0: conflict in northern Uganda so Kim, you've you've worked on these issues of sexual violence. This is a very difficult topic to discuss. Your work is on the, you know, sexual violence in international communities. W- tell us what are we talking about with Uganda and not just the sexual violence, but the overall trauma?
1: Hmm. In
0: Uganda, there were so many, I think,
1: layers of trauma that, that played out both in the immediate term of the conflict, but then I think transgenerationally and persist to today, as you've probably seen in working on the pretty remarkable series you pulled together. I think at the time we had crimes that one might see in many other types of conflict, right? You have abductions, you have recruitment of child soldiers, um, displacement from homes and villages, the targeting of particular groups, in this case, you know, the whole Acholi population in the north of Uganda. And and there was murder and, you know, just a lot of the brutality that I think we, we understand happens in many different conflicts. This case also we had in the context of abduction of children, the utilization of kids as soldiers, but also as you've focused on in the series of forced marriage and sexual servitude, as Annie just mentioned, I think... The trauma that, aside from what might be obvious from the immediate harms, the displacement itself caused so much, I think, trauma at a community level, where you're in a community that is a largely agricultural community. And when displacement from your farms and from your livestock means basically a life of destitution after, and displacement into camps that turn into government-run facilities where one, I think it's largely understood that the government forces were also culpable of violence un, you know, against people under their control in the displacement camps and also in the surrounding areas. So you had multi layers of trauma, but also this long, long term, even after the cessation, hostil- hostilities, the poverty and having an entire generation miss out on education, which of course, has implications for survival and livelihood after. I think this is this compounded the immediate and the near-term trauma of the the conflict itself. Um, and then if you think about, and I know this came out also in, in the series, when you are in a society where community ties are so important and you have rape as a form of violence that happened in the conflict that produced children... And those children, typically in a Chile culture, you would derive your name from your father's family, right? And your rights to inherit land or your right to really participate as a full member of society comes from your family identity. And when you have children who are born through the rape of strangers, you have this subpopulation that is dislocated legally and socially from the community in which they are situated. And that has implications, I think, that are hard for us to imagine here in the States, honestly. There are very gendered aspects also of the conflict that I know that came out in your series also. You know, right after, as the conflict was drawing down, there was the creation, as as I'm sure you know, of the reception centers for children who were returning from the bush, right? And these reception centers were helping them get resituated and um, helping with integration back into their communities, which was incredibly difficult for all the reasons you touched on in your episodes. One of the challenges for girls who were returning from the bush, the ones who had become impregnated and had children as a result, they were not able to integrate into the education system as they came back, partly because if you're pregnant, you're not welcomed into the school system, but for them also they were rejected and severely ostracized. So there's an incredible, a Chile woman named Alice Achan, who when she was working in the reception center she she told my colleague who was there at the time that her dream was to start a school for girls that they could go learn their reading and writing after return learn maybe some vocational skills and actually have a chance of building lives for themselves even if their community wouldn't support them in doing so and so she started this academy with help from the MacArthur Foundation and it's pretty incredible those girls have been returned they they have childcare for their kids they've graduated, many have scholarships to go on to higher education. And now, as the population of girls who returned from abduction with children has drawn down over time because of the the passage of time, obviously, the school still stands, and it's working with girls who become pregnant as teenagers who are, um, I think, coming out of the conflict with these babies but also are similarly rejected by the local school systems and communities, so they are able to go to this school for their education. Um, So I I think the violence that was visited upon boys in the conflict is very, very real, and many were subjected to forms of gendered harm and sexualized torture sometimes, and being forced to commit atrocities that I think impacted them very deeply also. But they weren't bearing children, which is a very specific consequence of a very specific type of violence that was rampant in this conflict.
0: Now that we've finished the series, one of the questions that I have, and I think the people of Uganda maybe that we share, is what, what does justice look like? I mean, it's very, it's hard to even imagine what it's like to live in a country where there's so much personal and internal and national trauma. But I want to talk a little bit about uh, the International Criminal Court, because you know the I found it really interesting about the ICC that, you know, Uganda is a signatory, and the United States is not, um, which is also interesting. Um, but that Uganda, once it became a signatory state, that when President Museveni um, asked referred the conflict to the ICC to say, we you know, we are not able to deal with this. We cannot handle uh, what's happening in our country. Um, at that point, when the ICC takes it on, they don't let go until um, they decide to let go. So they have not. And at this point, it's been, you you know, decades since the ICC really began their investigation, and they initiated initiated indictments against some of the commanders, only five, I believe, of the commanders out of approximately something like 100. Um, So... Where do we stand now that, you know, one of the men who was, you know, charged, indicted, and is now at the ICC? I mean, is it enough that the ICC step in and uh, file indictments and hold a hearing? Uh,
3: is where What does that mean at this point? You know, one of the things that you hear a lot in northern Uganda is um, is controversy about the International Criminal Court. And there's certainly not one opinion for all of the region or all of the country about the ICC. You'll have some people who really, like in other parts of the world, look at the ICC as a lot of resources being expended uh, on very few um, indictments and very few trials. So we, we saw that um, with all sorts of previous trials, and and the same is true with Dominic Ongwen currently on trial in The Hague. And when I first pitched the story to Nancy, the image, one of the images that we found most powerful was the image of Ongwang in The Hague in a blue suit and being fed three meals and so on. And um, some of his uh, former wives and others who had been subjected to violence and brutality, as Kim said, in communities in northern Uganda, thinking, here we are toiling away, uh, trying to put our kids through school, trying to pay those school fees. And yet he is there in Europe in some ways, sitting tight and comfortable. Uh, and on the other hand, there are definitely calls for accountability, and that you know those who were most responsible in the highest level of command in the LRA should be held responsible. But picking up anon- another thing you said, there are those who also look at the violence committed by the Ugandan government and military over the years, including the mass displacement of you know almost a 1.5 million people, and the ways in which the camps were used, in fact, as other. Sites of violence and neglect. And they think, you know, where, where are the indictments? Where's the responsibility? Where's the accountability for the Ugandan government? So all of those... Um controversies play out in the discussions about the ICC criminal accountability and responsibility in in Uganda. But I think the broader question that you're asking, Nancy, about what justice looks like includes those things. It includes accountability, includes uh, reparations for victims. It includes holding those who are most responsible accountable. But it also has to do with those things at the Very local level, at the very personal level of how to have reparations between families and kin, uh, how to send kids to school, how to attach them to the father's family in order to have access to land, how to repair and and go forward in terms of social repair for a community that's had such trauma for such a long time. So all of those things, I think, are part of the package of what justice looks like. Uh, But now I think that You know, when after there's only one person on trial of the LRA commanders in The Hague, it seems to be out of proportion to the scale of violence and the years of displacement and trauma that has been experienced in northern Uganda.
1: Thanks, Annie. And maybe to follow up, I had two thoughts listening to you. One is about the ICC and this idea of complementarity. Inter- what, is, what is complementary? Complementarity is this principle, and it's part of the international criminal court mandate, that it is only supposed to take jurisdiction over cases where it's, it's supposed to be secondary as a as a mechanism. It is supposed to defer to a national system, assuming that there is a meaningful prosecutorial mechanism and judicial mechanism to try a case at the national level. And so if there is, if such a mechanism does exist and it can provide meaningful prosecution of a case the icc is supposed to step back and doesn't have jurisdiction over that particular defendant for those particular acts in this case it was determined that they do have jurisdiction because there was not um, a meaningful chance of a judicial process at the ugandan level for the five that you mentioned were indicted Um, i think what's really interesting my first thought here is that it's incredibly limited this is a huge i think often heard critique of the ICC, that it is does not for the budget and the time it has. Um, it hasn't really made enough progress on the situations it's it's looking at. That, If we put that aside for a second, what's very interesting at, in Uganda is that the national court, the national judicial system has actually developed a mechanism for trying international crimes now. It's called, well, now it's called the International Crimes Division of the High Court. And it was established initially as a war crimes division in 2008, following the Juba peace talks that would attempt to bring the LRA commanders to the table to negotiate a peace settlement. Um, part of that, the peace talks was saying, okay, we, in order to move forward and part of our transition into a peaceful situation in Uganda, we need certain things, including a domestic accountability mechanism. And so this chamber was set up within the high court of Uganda. Unfortunately, it's taken a long time to actually operationalize the chamber. It exists, and but in this whole last, you know, five, six years now, since, uh, well, actually 2008, it's almost nine years since its, you know, technical uh, installation, it has only taken up one case itself. And this is the current case against Thomas Coyello, who is a mid-level commander in the LRA and this case has just been delayed for so many years because there was an amnesty question whether he was eligible for amnesty that went up to the supreme court it came back down um then there were these other functional delays but it is an example of a domestic team of prosecutors domestic panel of judges trying to work through the country's first domestic war crimes case which is challenging you know in any any time we see this it's incredibly challenging these are folks who are very good at their jobs, but they've always worked within the domestic penal system. And they are trying to to make sense of the international law that applies in a case like this. I think that one of the other challenges is that the statutory framework in Uganda has a gap with respect to non-international armed conflict, which is how the conflict in the North is being characterized. So I think we do have some hope of A domestic mechanism to complement the International Criminal Court efforts related to the Northern Uganda conflict. Um, It's just, it has, it's taking some growing pains. It's really difficult to get off the ground. And the hope is that once they cut their teeth and really figure out how to try Thomas Coyello, whatever comes out of his conviction, the court will have had its first experience of a war crimes case and should be able to. Should the political will exist, also try other defendants, and and as you mentioned, Annie, we, you know, perhaps also members of the Ugandan government, the UPDF, which is implicated in in violations, also in particularly in the displaced populations in northern Uganda. So that that is a possibility, and we'll see. I know that they're working very hard to pull this case together. I think it's quite challenging for a number of resource and political will, and. Uh, legal reasons but but it is a, a another piece of the puzzle in addition to the international criminal court efforts there and then the only other point I wanted to raise in listening to you is as you said Annie I think or as you posed too, Nancy the idea of justice is it's so complicated and I think one thing that makes it complicated is people's priorities for justice change over time and so it really depends when you're asking not only do we have a heterogeneous population you know and there's not one single victim profile, right, coming out of Northern Uganda. People want different things, they have different backgrounds, they had different experiences of the conflict, but also people's needs change over time. And the Human Rights Center had done a number of population-based studies in Northern Uganda to measure and ask people what their priorities for justice were Um, at three different periods, I think. And we saw a, a shift from, you know, immediately after the conflict, priorities were understandably about security, right? I want to be in a safe place. I need protection for my family. You ask a couple years later, that shifts to, okay, we have security. Our kids haven't been able to go to school for years. We need education. We need to be able to grow our crops again. And so I think justice itself, it's, it's an evolving desire or the, the shape of it changes over time. And so depending on when you are asking, Um, Your interventions or what might be requested might be quite different. And it it has implications for accountability, too. I think in Uganda, and Annie, you probably found this quite quite clearly, there's a huge desire also for just getting, moving forward, right? Reconciliation, using some traditional methods to build and repair community um, relationships. And that's that's a very, very strong feature, I think, of a Choli culture, the storytelling and just trying to bring people together and, and make sense of what happened and then move forward. But there are also survivors who saw their families butchered and some of them want to go to court. And while we can't assume everyone wants the same thing, we have to make sure that the mechanisms, the options exist. And for folks who want to support a prosecution, that that mechanism exists and is, is able to actually allow them to have their day in court. And I think if that's possible, you do have the chance in the International Crimes Division of the High Court in Uganda for victim participation, which is very rare in a common law system. And victims can participate in the trial and give testimony in the trial, which is not normal, actually, in either our common law system or the Uganda common law system. But in this particular chamber, you can. And there will also be a mechanism for reparations. And it's not clear yet. It's too early to say, but... Perhaps we have individual reparations that come out of, you know, the case. Should there be a conviction, or we could have collective reparations, where there might be an award um, to the communities themselves. Perhaps a school or memorialization or whatever it is that, upon survey of their desires, um, comes out as you know the, the primary request for that form of justice. So there are some options there. We'll just have to see how it how it goes.
4: During this conversation, I've just been sitting there thinking um, whether or not there if there are certain crimes that are so heinous that justice doesn't really apply. Um, and this seems like one of those situations where people have both um, endured and witnessed such horrific things that to somehow make a claim for justice, justice just seems like a word and concept that is totally incommensurate with what these folks um, endured and experienced. Um, which kind of gives rise to a separate question of well, do we need to develop an entirely different and new way of thinking about what our response should be, both at a communal level and in, and in some regards, maybe at, a, at, a, at an international level? Um, it seems like a you know, part of the tension, I think, is that justice is a concept that looks backwards um, and tries to think about what things should be done in light of what has happened in the past. And because these crimes are so Are just so grievous there's nothing that can be done to put to make people whole um and so perhaps there needs to be some new conceptualizations that are both that both acknowledge the past but are much more forward-looking that is how can we both a make sure that things like this never ever ever happen again and b for the survivors what are the things that we can do to put them in the best path moving forward with their lives knowing that they will never be made whole but at the very least perhaps there are some things that we can do to make them most uh capable of dealing with uh their past in a way that can be and i, I don't want to use productive or happy because those terms also seem a bit off um but uh you know some conceptualization that is forward looking to make sure to put folks in the best place they possibly can be um, and I don't know what that concept is. Maybe it's reconciliation. Maybe it's, it's something, some mixture of reconciliation and truth and and, and justice. I, I don't know, but it just seems like we just need some serious thought about what what that looks like.
3: I think a lot of communities in a lot of different places would say that they already have those forward-looking mechanisms for reconciliation and, and justice and truth-seeking. And I'm not a scholar of, of transitional justice, but I think in that field, they would try and encapsulate those forward-looking elements that you're talking about in transitional justice mechanisms and more grassroots or bottom-up approaches to rebuilding in a post-conflict situation. And in northern Uganda, they do have an acholi um, system that's matoput, which we talk a little bit about um, in the series. And it's interesting there, too, that some people would say, actually, that more grassroots reconciliation mechanism, and Kim jump in, Um, And correct me here, but some people will say that that is appropriate for smaller scale conflicts where you really are repairing a relationship between two people or two uh, groups of people. The scale of this, you know, to whom would Coney be um, apologizing and seeking, uh, you know, seeking um, to repair his relationship with. It's too um, wide scale. Um, on the other hand, I do think that those more local mechanisms are part of what you're asking us to think about in terms of forward-looking um, reconciliation mechanisms that are not stuck in a more conventional criminal justice model.
4: Yeah, and I think in addition to that, and part of what I'm, I'm struggling with is that. No, these are crimes that are so heinous that, as you mentioned, Andy, it's the reconciliation model that focuses on, you know, individual crimes and repairing individual relationships. Just doesn't apply here. But in addition to that, you know, we also have to understand and appreciate the post-colonial condition that allowed these crimes to occur, and that is a situation that implicates many more people outside of Uganda, and it's a situation that we all have to, in a sense, appreciate. Kind of the global transnational activities that allow such heinous crimes be perpetrated upon these victims. And that's, and, and it's, it's from that standpoint that I really struggle about, you know, just conceptually, what is the appropriate response? Because to say, to lay the burden on the individual community members or to lay the burden on an international court doesn't seem to really respond to the magnitude, not only the magnitude of the crime, but the various levels of global actors that precipitate this issue and this mm-hmm. problem.
3: I totally agree with you and and I really appreciate the work that Tony did in our first episode when um, you know Nancy and Teddy and Gladys and I were all struggling to figure out basically how far to go back in order to historically contextualize um, the situation and the the conflicts that so we you know we said 86 which is when the conflict of the LRA began but of course we needed to go farther back as Gladys says in episode one but you know um, Tony was able to to bring that to life through the through the archival footage and we really heard that but I think it also invited us um, as researchers and people who care about these issues and listeners to think about everyone's responsibility in the ongoing Mm post-colonial violence that is taking place in Uganda and in the region. And, you know, that's related to resource extraction. That's related to, you know, the fact that the, as Nancy started off on the top, I mean, the United States is not a member state to the International Criminal Court, and yet Uganda is. So there's all sorts of politics and political economic questions that do need to stay on the table. And I think that, when you try and address both those macro issues along with the needs of individuals like Beatrice and Samuel at the grassroots you start to get that really complex picture of all the issues that we just we can't shy away from them just because they're overwhelming they actually need to all stay on the table and you know that's another thing that the that, that we tried to delve into in the series is you know these are all also highly gendered context. So, you know, and I was glad Kim brought up the Thomas Coyello case, because it's exactly the same as Dominic Ongwang. The initial gender crimes were not in the indictment list. Mm-hmm. And so we had, and we talk about, it, I think Benny Yee and mm-hmm. Aaron Baines or others talk about, oh, actually, I think maybe it was Florence from FIDA, the Women's Lawyers Association said, it's the same thing. Those were not on the table. So gender is also a structural uh, mechanism that we have to be thinking about and taking apart when trying to adjust these big questions around repair and social repair.
4: Yeah, and right. I think this, you know, for me, this issue is also, the role of history is critically important, and just to bring in a more contemporary conversation, um, what's going on now, you know, when we disconnect what's happening in the present moment from the historical context, it allows people to think that these present conditions are a function of the shortcomings of the individual people, which allow people to make comments uh, in terms of referring to these environments as quote-unquote shitholes. And when we do that, that and fundamentally fail to understand that these present conditions are a function of these kind of, as you were saying, Annie, these post-colonial conditions that implicate a whole range of actors across the globe... Once you're able to have that contextualization, you then have a deeper appreciation for how all these situations and problems and people are connected. And it further kind of raises the stakes around this question of what does it mean for us as a global community to have a just response to these victims?
1: Listening to you is making me think about how one other level of complexity that arises when you're thinking about how to move forward is that in so many of these cases, it's not a clear a dichotomy between victims and perpetrators, right? Like when you have conflicts where children are conscripted and are used as combatants from age 12, 13, as we had younger than that, even in Northern Uganda, it's very hard to not take into consideration the fact that they were also victims at the same time. It doesn't excuse, I think, the acts that they did consciously, but I don't know if you think about when we were twelve or thirteen, we were still being wired. Like we still, we were getting a sense of the world and right and wrong. And when you are abducted, and your new family that you have to, you have to bond with, or otherwise you will be sort of brutalized yourself, um, is telling you your new your new father is a commander who is perhaps seventeen or eighteen or maybe twenty himself is telling you to do certain things. This is a slow rewiring process, and you are committing atrocities that. I think, make you suffer also, honestly. And I don't, maybe it sounds like being an apologist about it, but I, I really, we sometimes forget that the specific elements of of child combatants, I think, complicate. They, 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 they demand a different type of approach to justice, I think. I think, you know, there's really interesting work. Um, it's Dara K. Cohen. Dara Cohen at Harvard. She has a social cohesion theory, particularly... She studies variation in sexual violence, in particular, in armed conflicts. And she was finding that in her study of multiple conflicts around the globe, there were different kinds of sexual violence that would happen. But particularly, gang rape was very common in conflicts where there were children who were recruited and abducted from different villages, as we had in northern Uganda, because they had to build social cohesion among the units. You know, you, you, you're in. You're suddenly thrown in with a group of other kids you don't know. They're from different towns. You've never met them. You have no reason to trust them. You miss your mother, your father, you miss your siblings. Commanders need you to integrate and bond with each other. And so this this obligation to go commit atrocities, including joining together to rape a young girl or another woman or an elderly woman, whoever it might be, forcing groups of children to transgress together, it it changes the moral universe for them and they are bonded by that experience and this is I think something we we think about but not in the legal world we understand it as humans when we talk about it. we understand it when we think about public health I think or psychological ramifications of trauma and violence but we don't really take it into account we haven't figured out how to take it into account in our legal mechanisms like what how much of a mitigating factor should that be in Ongwen's sentence, should he be convicted, right? He was also recruited as a child. How much of that should be a factor in Coyola, whatever happens to him, should he be convicted? And and what do we do for generations of kids who are reintegrated on the surface, but really have deep trauma? Are we providing enough psychosocial support and making sure they're not treated as perpetrators for the rest of their lives? Because I'm pretty sure that will ensure some negative outcomes for them.
4: Yeah. And it's, I think this is such an important question. And, uh, It raises this really interesting issue, which is what happens when victims commit crimes. Um, And to make another kind of link to an issue that's going on now, so CNN is uh, playing a documentary series now on Patty Hearst, um, who was abducted here in Berkeley and then committed some crimes um, back in the, I believe, the 70s. And it's interesting comparing kind of the response to her. So she was ultimately arrested and convicted, and I believe she received a pardon from Jimmy Carter. and um, and how there's been a certain level of sympathy that's been, that has um, surrounded the Patty Hearst case. Um, but when we see that, that dynamic play out in a global sense, um, there is a little less compassion from some people. Um, so this is why, you know, connecting to my previous comments about what the president said about this part of the world. You know, we have to understand um, that our response to the situation has to seek out the underlying humanity of people and to address the complexities that you spoke to, Kim, which is that these uh, these dynamics are not clear cut and that the people that we think of as perpetrators were often victims themselves. And to put that in the broader um, transnational and global context and histories that we're talking about, um, it's difficult. And to try to apply these traditional concepts of justice, reconciliation, etc., to these situations um, is can lead to, I think, new forms of tensions that don't speak to the granularity of the issues and the people involved. And there's a lot, I know there are people like yourselves working on this and trying to figure out how to move forward. But I think this is something that um, has to occur at a scale that's much bigger than what we're doing right now.
0: So one thing that is really been hard to understand in this whole process of producing this series and, you know, getting depth of an opportunity to understand something that's happened so far away. And yet even with a three-part series of 45 minutes each and with reporting happening right in the same region as the conflict happened and i think one question that comes out is why did this happen i still don't understand where the international community was where was the united nations where where were the international uh, where's, where was the international response when this began? If we had prevented this, we wouldn't be sitting here today, nor would all of these children and their children. Did we? Have we learned anything about international response, about prevention? I mean, I know at the end of Part 3, you know, one of the, you know, Isaac O'Queer, who, who was one of our... Uh, one one individual we spoke to throughout the series who lives in northern Uganda, one of the final things he says is it's, all, it's really about prevention. But have we really learned anything about prevention when something happens so far away? You know, because I just have to say, you know, this series took a huge effort. And I think anyone who hears it is going to get some of the complexity of the post-colonial impact of what happens to a country when it has gone through this kind of history. And so do we do we really know that we would prevent something today if it happened again?
4: So I think this is a fascinating question in part because if you look historically in terms of like the global response after World War II, was the emergence of this modern notion of international human rights. So that was in part a response to understanding that these global atrocities happened too many people stood by and watched and didn't do anything. And the idea was moving forward, the international community would leverage its powers and resources to make sure things like this didn't happen again. And so you fast forward to this contemporary moment where we're talking about what's happening in Uganda, and you think about, well, what's been the global response? And it's been the complete opposite. You think of things like Brexit, you think of the election of Donald Trump and his, which basically was an election based upon xenophobia and isolation from global commitments. You think about other uh, strains with the EU in terms of these kind of European trends towards isolation. Isolationism. So this is to say that you know, to answer your question, Nancy, we're in trouble, right? So if if the global trajectory is towards isolationism and growing xenophobia and and lack of care for our global um, neighbors, then that seems to be a recipe for allowing such atrocities like this to continue to move forward without some type of strong international body to take some responsibility and to engage.
0: It seems like it makes it easy for people in America. To say, oh, they're different. That's a different kind of situation because it's in Africa. And then along comes...
4: Including the Don- President of the United exact- States. Actually
0: using kind of language that is just creating this othering, this that they're they're the other. So whatever happens, mm-hmm. that's what happens over there. Um, and I think we're kind of at a time when I think Christiane Amanpour was just interviewed for the New York Times Magazine. And at the end, she said she's not really worried about the the local journalism. She's worried about the impact of, you know, journalists who drop in and leave. And, you know, there's this kind of drop in journalism where people don't spend uh, journalism organizations, institutions are no longer going and doing deep investigative reporting or uh, more accurate, you know, more in-depth reporting from from places around the world. So there's this lack of understanding, lack of Knowledge and that creates the opportunity for someone to come along like Donald Trump and say what he says about countries that he has no relationship to, that he does not understand, I assume. Um, And so I think that it's the most important time that I think journalism does this kind of work. Um, It's essential that we maintain a, a vigilance to and a commitment. To doing this kind of complexity reporting like where you you don't just tell a story you you dive in you 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 bring it to the human level so that we all understand oh we would we should have done something mm-hmm. um instead of just
3: turning our back and calling it a name, but I think you know the the same can be said about human rights activism and human rights scholarship. That um, while there was a discourse about prevention and global citizenship and accountability, after World War II and in the building of those institutions, there also was a tendency to do drop-in human rights reporting. Mm -hmm. And that model has been uh, seriously critiqued. Uh, But nonetheless, it was was something that led to a particular dynamic, even within human rights reporting, as I say, of othering and insensitive reporting that didn't have the deep dive into the historical context and the post-colonial reality of many of the conflicts. So I think that exactly what you say about journalism could also be turned and looking at ourselves as researchers and human rights activists and reporters. So we also need, I think that we're also at this crucial moment where... There's enough, you know, great people doing research um, in Uganda, in Sierra Leone, in Rwanda, and elsewhere that we can work in collaboration, and that they that with an appreciation of local cultural and historical context, that doesn't necessarily risk. Although there's still always the risk of um, insensitive or stereotypical or revictimization in our work, because I think that. As Osagi said, you know, there's there's been this development of a whole set of human rights institutions, but there's also now, just like um, a backlash against the International Criminal Court, there's also been serious critique of the ways in which human rights activism didn't actually substantially challenge or substantively challenge the power and hierarchies between the global north and the global south. In fact, much of uh, the scholarship there has shown that human rights actually re-entrenched many of those. Um, hierarchies and power dynamics. So if we can start chipping away at those in our work, we may be making it some way along the road to prevention and more meaningful collaborative work. But until we do that, until we are open, as you and Tony and hopefully the series was, open to that critique, then we we risk reproducing the, those very same dynamics. Is there anyone who had last thoughts?
0: I yes. want to give everyone an opportunity to make a quick last thought. Kim?
1: As much as I work in Uganda and have been there for years and years, it was so wonderful to listen to your series and have just a different perspective or a different set of voices come to light and teach me some things that I hadn't really known or hadn't thought about in a long time. So thank you.
0: Thank you for coming this morning, Kim Seelinger. And Tony?
2: Um, To me, the most striking aspect of the story is the circumstances of living within a society that has to grapple with a segment of their population that is coming back to live, and to me the thing that stuck out was this word, stigmatization. Beatrice kept on referring to it, and to me, caused such a massive overload of lack of understanding. I really appreciate being able to have tried to grapple with this subject.
0: Yeah, I
4: just want to say thanks to You, you, Nancy, Tony, and Annie for putting this story together and bringing it to my attention and to the attention of our listeners.
3: I just want to also say, you know, a big thanks to everyone on the team and Gladys and Teddy, of course. And just like today, if we were trying to link them in, it would be nighttime in Uganda. So they were giving up their Tuesday and Friday nights in order to do the work that took hours and hours on the script and then on the editing. Of the sound and it was just incredible so I, I just wanted to to reinforce what others have said and um, and say thanks to to tony and to nancy
0: and uh, from my perspective as that you've heard it was an honor and it has been an honor to work with this team and we'd love to hear from you tell us what you think about uganda the series Or if you have a question about the law or a news story you want us to sort out, send an email to connect at lifeofthelaw.org and be sure to include your contact information so we can follow up. Thanks to our in-studio team, Asagi Obasagi, professor at the UC Berkeley School of Public Health and a member of Life of the Law's Advisory Board, Tony Gannon, filmmaker, and our senior producer, And to our guests, Annie Bunting, co-producer of the series on Uganda and professor at York University in Toronto, and Kim Seelinger, director of the Sexual Violence Program at the UC Berkeley Human Rights Center. Kim oversees the center's research, teaching, and writing on sexual violence during armed conflict and forced migration. Her current work focuses on accountability for wartime sexual violence, protection in humanitarian settings, and the prosecution of international crimes in national courts. You can find links to Osagi Obaski, Annie Bunting, and Kim Seelinger's work on our website, lifeofthelaw.org. Tony Gannon will senior produce this episode, and Rachel Kane will post-produce this episode. Howard Gelman is our engineer here at KQED. Joe Lenartine at WQCS in Florida was our engineer with Annie Bunting. We also want to take a minute to thank listeners who have made donations to support Life of the Law and especially this series on Uganda. I hope you join them in making a donation to Life of the Law today. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply network of podcasts from Slate. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening.